Welcome to the official podcast channel of SIREN, the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network based at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded during a virtual event and has been lightly edited for ease of listening. Without further ado, I am really excited to be introducing Tanisha Harrell and Rebecca Ango, who are going to be the moderators for our session. Turning it over to both of you right now. Hello, everyone. My name is Tanisha Harrell. I am really excited to be here with Rebecca and the panelists. And we hope that this is an engaging conversation for you all. As you can see, I'm representing San Diego, California, with the cool breeze and palm trees in the background, give you a little bit of aesthetics, and uh, we just hope that you're in for a ride. And so, as Caroline uh, pointed out that, um, and you pronounced my name correctly, by the way, I just wanted to let you know, thank you. We are here to kind of, you know, summarize, share points of perspectives around our intent uh, that we initially had for the conference. And so I'm going to um, read these out in, um, I'm differently abled in terms that I um, have lots of eyesight in my left eye. So you might see papers every now and then, please forgive me for that. And so at this juncture, I will turn it over to Rebecca to introduce herself. And I am also the director of partner engagement with 211 San Diego, the CIE team. So much, T. This is uh, Rebecca Ann Gove, the uh, co-facilitator, and I'll be doing a lot of monitoring of the chat. I am the EVP of Research and Evaluation at Patient Advocate Foundation. I am also the director of our Patient Insight Institute, and I have been on the planning committee uh, for this event, so I'm so excited to be here and see this three-day event happen. It's, It's been very, very rewarding. I just want to really highlight and and set us up for the day a little bit. This, I think, is really one of the most important uh, panels of the entire event. Uh, My career has been solely focused on incorporating the patient and caregiver perspective, those within communities and with lived experience, um, pulling those perspectives into policy care and research initiatives. And so I really feel like those that have lived experience, that are experts in that experience. Um, I heard somebody say they have a PhD in the lived experience. Um, I think these are the most important voices and and reflections that we will hear in the entire event. So thanks for joining us today, T. Thank you for being our uh, fearless leader uh, in this conversation. And I, I look forward to this next hour. Awesome. Thank you. So I'd like to introduce you to Mike Benier. Tell you a little bit about Mr. McNear. I have uh, grown to call him Uncle Mike. Mike uh, has lived experience as a caregiver for over 30 years for a parent with Alzheimer's disease while dealing with an immunosuppressant disease for over 20 years. And Mr. McNear currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia. Can we get some uh, claps and hands shouts for Mr. McNear? Welcome. And then we also have Stephanie Walker with us. Living and thriving with metastatic breast cancer since 20, July 2015, advocating for equal and quality care for Black men and women living with MBC in rural and underserved areas, and a retired RN who has taken care of most precious, the most precious population, babies and geriatrics, in critical care settings for over 40 years, 
and currently resides in eastern North Carolina in a small community, rural by standards. Can we give a shout out and welcome to Ms. Stephanie. And next we have uh, Anne Reynoso. One sentence that describes Anne is that Anne was recently diagnosed with lymph... You guys are giving me interesting words to pronounce. Here we go. Lymphocentric intestinal pneumonia and pulmonary fibrosis two and a half years ago and currently resides in Texas. Anne, did I pronounce that correctly? If not, I would love for you to add your voice in, say it accurately if I didn't pronounce it correctly. <laughs> it's called lymphocytic interstitial pneumonia. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> That's a lot for a girl with a list. And next up, we have Lisa Hamlet, currently from Southern New Jersey. Let me tell you a little bit about Miss Lisa. Pardon my panda is one of her favorite phrases in reference to the 22 animated film, Turning Red. Some interests that Lisa has are, she enjoys all types of music, going down to the shore, revelry of the arts, cycling, simple physics, a novice birder, sumo wrestling enthusiast, and an avid interest in cultural anthropology. Lisa has over 20 years experience in public education and 10 years in banking and finance. How are you guys doing today? We're doing well. We are doing awesome. well. Awesome. Yes, we are. Are you guys ready to, to share some perspectives? Yes. 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 Lovely, lovely, yes. lovely. Over these three days, we all got to experience various discussions. We got to experience different plenaries, learn different things. I know I've learned a lot. Um, I've also been challenged. And i just like to kind of know from um, some of you, what has been most impactful and resonated with you thus far? And uh, we'll just do a ping. We'll start with Miss Stephanie. Oh, great. Put me on this. <laughs> Put me on the spot. Well, um, I'm going to claim my chemo brain, but I have been really surprised today's sessions have been just talking about uh, food insecurities that, and sorry about the background noise. Um, I'm gonna apologize right now for that. That especially children in pediatric hospitals or in a hospital, um, I have seen where there is home or food um, insecurities. But like I was asking one of the researchers, apparently there's no follow-up when these kids go home. You know, in the hospital, they can order all the food in the world, you know, and they're going to get all the food in the world. But then they go home and they don't have that. So there's no follow up. And knowing about the SNAP program, yeah, a lot of Blacks do receive the SNAP programs, but apparently the cost or the price per meal hasn't gone up in months, Sundays, days, and years. And um, also, in speaking regarding another racial group is the Asians obviously have huge food insecurities, but really low SNAP involvement. So um, that was very interesting. And coming from the medical background, you don't get a lot of the socioeconomic stuff in the hospital. You kind of like do your thing in the hospital and send them back to where they came from, per se. And sometimes that's not always a good thing to send them back to where they, where they came from. So um, today's have been really, really enlightening. So. Thank you for sharing. Yes. Anyone else have anything to offer? Yes. I would like to segue from uh, Stephanie to Dr. Rhea Boyd and Dr. Osaji and Darren, uh, Mr. Darren from Berkeley and Sanford. They did an incredible job in educating me 
to focus on how critical and serious this racial medical divide is in, in, in America, in the USA. I am one, and I'll put it out there right away, I am definitely for universal health care that would help to address a lot of the barriers that we are experiencing as a nation. We're one of the richest nations on the face of the earth. And yet we still are dealing with these medical divisions and divides and discrimination. And I can parallel it with my 30 years of uh, caregiving to 30 plus years, really. I had a mother who passed roughly almost at 99 years old, and I had to sacrifice my scientific chemical career to provide care for my elderly mother dealing with dementia slash Alzheimer's. And I found myself in that, being that uh, I pursued a career, but yet I was looking for my real purpose. And my purpose was to be a servant to the dearest person in my life. And that was my mom. And now looking at this particular conference, I see why I was challenged with a lot of the social programs that I was denied or had to actually take my parents out of the system and bring them into my own home to provide care. And not only my mom, I had to do it for her brother as well. So uh, I was moved by the transparency of Dr. Rhea Boyd and Dr. Osaji, the honesty and the boldness and how they presented the, the, the data and their material and what steps we can take to move this uh, discussion forward. Yeah, are you really, are you an abolitionist? Oh, absolutely. I am now. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yes, I think there are many of us that can resonate um, with taking care of a loved one and how the system itself is designed to create more poverty in order to have access to those services. I, I can totally identify with that. Ms. Lisa or Ms. Ann, do you have anything that you would like to share that is what, what's resonated with you, some things that you've learned, some things that you would like to share? Ms. Lisa, yes, come on through. <laughs> yeah, in, in piggybacking on what Mike was talking about, uh, yes, I, I would have to say the, the trio for the... Um, the uh, for the education that that was very impactful for, for me because I've worked in the public education system for about 20 years and um, one of the most profound things was uh, talking about abolishing the per, uh, current education system I agree uh, wholeheartedly because it's not working and something needs to be done it's a broken system but also please keep in mind that although <laughs> It's broken. Some of the students, some of the children, th that is the only place where they can get a hot meal and the only place where they get medical care. And when I tell you it is to that extreme, to some, some, how some of these children, some of the environments that they are um, dwelling in or trying to survive in, it's, it's as basic as that. So although I agree that, yeah, we do need a huge overhaul of our education system and, you know, have a complement with the healthcare, uh, some healthcare uh, terms uh, for the, the, the school district would be really great. But yeah, I thought that that was really good too. 
Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing. Ms. Ann? I just wanted to uh, say what I took away from, from this conference. Um, first of all, it's been nice to be a part of a group with wonderful people, made some great friends. And I've learned a lot from a lot of the researchers here too. I learned um, that I finally am so glad that we are absolutely discussing and recognizing the in inequalities and disparities in healthcare and social care, especially the biases. Um, we did talk, we've talked about food scarcity. Uh, we've talked about, you know, racism, inequality, but this past, uh, and most of you know, I'm a freelance writer. Uh, so I do write about, um, you know, my, my healthcare and lived experiences for bio news. And my uh, current article is about biases in um, weight uh, within, the health, within healthcare. And how a lot of um, minorities, especially in my culture, we battle with weight gain and uh, have, you know, how to lose weight and how to eat properly and healthy and nutritiously. But the problem with that is that a lot of us don't have the, the means to, to provide ourselves with healthy foods. So I'm really glad uh, that at least now we're, we're trying to get these uh, disparities and inequalities out there through research and hopefully more people, more universities, more communities will, and more organizations will hear about this and we can actually move forward you know, more with, with that and figure out what to do next. And Mike, I like your idea with the universal health. I do like that. I also wanted to inquire, I'm, I'm curious in terms of many of our presenters are from, you know, social care research and in terms of like presenting findings and, and how that resonates with the community. And often some of the things that I hear from community, and I also have ex experienced uh, myself in participating in evidence-based um, research in terms of never really knowing what the outcomes were of that particular said research. In your interaction with the conference, is there anything that you would like to offer our um, social care research researchers what would be most helpful, you know, in moving forward? And we understand that researchers don't always necessarily interact with said subjects. However, is there anything, you know, from your insight that you've gained over these last three three um, days that you would like to offer as an opportunity that would be more helpful or what you would like to see more of. And I'll go to Miss Lisa. Oh, and you well. Can, you can feel free to pass if you like. No, no okay. Well, uh, that, there's a lot of content. So I will try to answer as best as I possibly can. Well, the one thing that I could say about research, that one thing that I, I hope that there is understanding who your subjects are, that your subjects are actually people, okay? That they are actual human beings. And yes, they, 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 if they're asking for research and we're choosing to partake in the research, then yes, there should be some accountability as to what happens to the research. Where does it go? Where does all this information go? Mm -hmm. And I, I said it earlier uh, today that the research if you're gathering research for one project, then that research information needs to stay with that project. And it should not be leaked or exchanged unless the intended purpose is for that to be done. But you should do that beforehand. There should be a contract or a, um, uh, a consent form 
that states that that's what the purpose is going to be. And it should be adhered to because what has happened for me, especially and with other people, uh, sometimes research is used in a negative way. You've got gathered research, but the research that you have gathered, instead of helping, is now harming because now you've also brought some prejudice into it. Case in points, I had a cardiologist told me that the reason my heart condition was getting worse is because I used too much salt in my food. You don't know that. You haven't spoken to me. You haven't asked me about my diet. You don't know anything about me, but because of who I am and the research that was given to you, you just assume that that is, that's part of my diet. That's just a small example of uh, something with research that could go negative and preventative measures should be put so that that doesn't happen. Yes, thank you for for sharing. As you were uh, speaking, I was thinking about Dr. Ryan's home on I am not your data, you know, like oftentimes because of previous research, um, black and brown bodies are stereotyped into certain what we call chronic diseases. And we have to, you know, have a conversation with that individual. Thank you for sharing this, Lisa. Is there anyone else? Yes. Yes, I like to I like to weigh in too. In one of our previous uh, sessions, we discussed with uh, researchers that a lot of times their funding is so limited until it doesn't have the capacity for the suggestion that I made whenever researchers are doing their work that should be coupled with lived experienced people where a human touch is placed on it, okay? And that's the balance. Another great part of that particular session was where the funding is being allocated and not properly targeted to really address the medical research objective. And that right there was uh, an incredible find also. So that's what I'd just like to add to Lisa and and what she was actually uh, saying there. And I would like to add on, and T, if you don't mind, I'd like to add on to what Mike and Lisa has said is um, Yeah, thank you, Uncle Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Saying that, you know, when you don't have the funding and you're talking about having a patient or expert with experience, I don't think when you're, I, I think a researcher needs to start off with that idea present it to whomever, his his lab or whomever. And at that time, enroll, ask, seek out, partner with that patient advocate, that patient with lived experience at the beginning, exactly. and then roll into what you need to do. So it is understandable later on, and, and it could be presented for funding or whatever, because I think that should be... I, I know with a lot of uh, NIH grants, I believe now, you have to have a patient advocate on your grants, or you should. And if not, they're not funded, but also to make sure that that patient is involved in, or that person in the beginning. Don't seek one of us out at the end because you found out one of your qualifications is a check mark if you happen to have or need a patient advocate. I don't wanna be your check mark on the end. 
Yeah. I want to be that participant in the beginning. You and also, right there. exactly. And, and also with the funding, I think that even though I am a volunteer, I, I need to be paid for my time. I need to have something done, um, whether it's an honorarium, a gift card, take me to dinner, buy me a new dress, some <laughs> red bottom shoes. No, I'm just joking. But um, so, uh, you know, I think the patients need to be given something for their time. And when you're doing the clinical trials, and I'll, I'll, I'll shut up in just a minute, clinical yeah. trials, you know, that is part of the barriers of black and brown people with clinical trials is that the barrier is they don't have transportation to get there. So why can't you have it close to that where they are? Don't make them travel to California to get scans and blood work when they can go five minutes down the road and get the same scans and blood work and have them transmitted to California. Also, while they're there eight to 10 hours a day, they need to have food. Provide them a meal ticket so they can eat. Don't send them there with no food. Just a minute ago, we we're talking about food insecurities. Then you're talking about daycare or, or babysitting costs. Most of them have kids. So who's going to get them off the bus? Who's going to get John, Johnny off the bus or put them in daycare and also pay them for their, their work? Nine times out of 10, people of color that are in clinical trials have missed a day of work and they work to keep their insurance because they're sick. So um, that was my spiel and I'll be quiet for a minute and let somebody else go. Thank you very much. And would you like to share anything? And if we have anything that um, what I'm hearing you say is that put some respect on it. And what I mean by that, for those who may not understand, is that, you know, honoring what I'm hearing you say is don't wait till afterwards until you recognize that my perspective and my living lived experience and actually participating and going through this. You know, it's interesting. I've been rethinking like words because sometimes, you know, language is so important. and as we learn more, there needs to be an evolution of, of the language that we use. You know, we have nurse practitioners, we have different practitioners and people who are closest to these systems. And the systems are also within us as well. That's something that I have to level set myself on. But what I'm hearing you say is to honor my time, honor my, my experience in going through, honor my knowledge, honor my learning, and, um, you know, really taking that person in perspective and their needs to be able to participate. As we're often told, we need more black and brown bodies to participate in clinical research. But I find that trust is an issue. Ms. Yeah. Ann, were you gonna share? Um, you know, I, I'm Nick, I'm, I'm, it's nothing against surveys. I think surveys are good and all, but I just, in order, I feel like in order for you to really find out someone's perspective, especially those that are lived with lived experience and even caregivers, Bless those people who are caregivers. Bless yeah. them. Uh, my daughter is a caregiver and I'm grateful for her. But it's hard to explain to you my lived experience and what I'm going through on a daily basis with just a questionnaire or a survey. You have to actually speak to me. You don't know anything about me at all. And you're coming to me and wanting to know my life and my lived experience. And how can you do that with just certain questions or yes and no open-ended questions? You know, you just, you need to ask me as an individual. And also uh, another thing too is I would, I love looking at research and I love reading research, but I would like for once to know what has come of that research. Did it help anyone? Has it helped the community? 
Has it helped any organizations? I want to know what has happened. And I haven't really read much of, of any conclusions on how these researchers have actually worked. So that would be I, nice to see. I think it keeps a lot of research labs funded. I think it keeps a lot of institutions, research institutions funded. These are very um, great perspectives. Rebecca, do we have anything? Are you guys open to taking uh, maybe a question or two from, from our attendees? Bring them on. We got it. Yeah, our <laughs> chat is so active. Um, so our, our uh, participants, our audience is, is very engaged and excited about this conversation. So I'm just going to pull them in in the order that they came. So this is from an earlier comment that Stephanie made. This is directed to you, Stephanie, but um, I think anybody on the panel could chime in as well. What ideas do you have for connecting hospital discharge planning to food resources from social services so we don't just send them back to where they came from um, into a food insecure situation? Okay, discharge planning. Um, everybody will tell you, uh, at least I, the nursing perspective of this is discharge planning starts on the day of admission. So with that being said, and I know sometimes they're in and out, but they have to be assigned like a social worker or something that is continuity of care, I guess. So the social worker is aware of where they come from. Moms may have spoke to them or they've done one of those um, checklist thingies and they see that there's issues. Have a conversation with mom, with the social worker, a food services or something, then have her link to these services that are out there in the community before she goes home to see what is available for them or send them home and let them know that there will be a 24-hour follow-up. Send the child home with 24 hours worth of food to give mom time to figure out what she can do to go, you know, whether it's the five for SNAP or some other kind of funding um, that they, you know, may have resources, food banks or something in the, in the interim of maybe she's just following hard times, you know? So um, I think just having the link between the discharge and the community, there's gotta be a link there that they can have uh, so that child doesn't go back home and bounces back into the hospital for failure to thrive. This one is about the concept of abolishing the current educational system. And our audience member is wondering if this is dumping it entirely and starting a new one or a massive fix, given that it's a place of last resort for healthcare and food for many families. So that's something I think that we touched on very early in, in the comments as well. Any thoughts? I'll say, again, I'll take this one. I'll take, I'll take part of it. I don't think gutting the whole thing is going to, to, I mean, you can't gut it and start over. Uh, that's for sure. I think there is some ways to tweak it, get rid of some things, make people be more responsible. And I think that's where it might start from, you know, uh, go in and see, do a true assessment of the system that you have, a true assessment. Go into the homes and see what is actually there, who actually lives there. Check the schools in which the kids are going to. But I think scrapping the whole thing and starting over, you don't have that much time and you definitely don't have that much money. And that, that's a whole other conference, right? We, we just need to have a whole exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I agree. I agree. Exactly. I agree. Not scrapping the whole thing, but I think it needs a severe overhaul 
um, yeah, for for those reasons that you just stated right there. All right. And this last question is for all four of you. I, I think you'll all have things to, to say to this one. This uh, attendee is interested to hear what research questions you or the panelists would like researchers to study. So if you if you could take the researchers and point them in any direction, what, what do you want them to study? I would like for them to study uh, for those researchers dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's because I have such a long experience and journey with it. In the future going forward, I would like for them to not only focus on the patient, but also include the caregiver, because it becomes a point where I was almost pulling my hair out and providing the care for my mother because the systems was failing. The nursing homes, I, I dealt with four different nursing homes to get some type of relief. And it's almost to the point that you have a breakdown yourself. And my doctor saw it clearly and said, Mike, you are losing yourself in this journey and trying to prepare to provide the excellent care for your mother. And I says, but I don't have the support. The only time that I did receive the system to help me was when it became hospice time. And they were like hospice angels. But that at that point, you're not able to really enjoy the real quality of life of your loved one because you're then saying the long goodbye. But I'd like for them to focus on our researchers and our funding on the caregiver just as much as the patient that's requiring the care needed. I'm going to jump in there again. <laughs> Survivorship. I'll, then I'll quit. I promise. I think um, researchers need to research regarding breast cancer survivorship. And when I say that, you know, survivorship, again, starts at the point of diagnosis for breast, I'm talking about with all cancers, but my experiences with breast cancer. So you, you have the patient that's going through these phases, they go through their initial treatment, and then they end up out here when, you know, they're supposed to be quote unquote cured. And we know as you know, metastatic breast cancer patients, 30% of early stage breast cancer patients become metastatic later on. So not to plant a seed to fear, but to plant a seed to be cautious and be aware and know your body. So when they're out here and they've finished their treatment and they've, they're on their regimen of maintenance medication, many breast cancer patients feel depressed because they, it's all stopped now all the doctor appointments and all the chemo and all the treatment. So they're out here left by themselves now. I'm trying to figure out which way to go. And not only them, but us that are metastatic where treatment will never end. We just need a place to be able to have some kind of a quality of life, a place to go to uh, decompress. So survivorship is, is good for all stages, I guess, all phases of, of an illness. Those that are consistent and um, that will never quit and those that have stopped treatments. My topic would be holistic and preventive care. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Let's try to have, you know, options where instead of giving a pharmaceutical first, let's try 
maybe adding something to the diet, try nutrition, try, of course, uh, exercise, but try something different. Why do we always have to go for the chemical, which is cheap and caustic? And most of the time, people that are in a different social economical level can't afford the medicine to begin with. So if we have preventative care, perhaps it might lessen the symptoms or even might eliminate some of the chronic illnesses that are plaguing the black and brown communities uh, since we are the ones that are more at a disadvantage. Elisa, if I may bounce off of what you're saying and you're right on point, you, you, you're, you're right on point. I've found it so difficult even in providing care over the 20 years. Financially, it will bankrupt you caring for a dementia Alzheimer's person. No matter how much you put aside or trying to resource and pull from here, Rob Peter to pay Paul, it will. I tell you, it's it, it's a journey. It, it's a journey. And I saw some of the comments that I believe that uh, either Rebecca or T will actually pick up. And that's what I have to say in that regard. But I'm 100% I'm on board with what Lisa is saying. The chat box is uh, blowing up, Mike. Uh, and I'm sure that's what you're referring to. And talking about this tension about providing hope as opposed to statistics, but knowing that there needs to be some foundation for that. And, and I think that really is a push-pull, this idea of research and statistics versus hope and, and that patient-centeredness and, and how do we balance that. There's a lot of talking about prescribing and drug companies and, and the cost of the cost of care and who is profiting. And, and I I'm not going to do the chat justice. And, and I think things that we don't explicitly talk about in these spaces, but that I think are in the background of a lot of um, patients and caregivers as, as well as hopefully in the back of researchers' minds as well. Okay, someone, actually it was Caroline actually put this one in there. She didn't put it in the question and answer, but wanted to know what the panelists would say uh, the healthcare sector needs to do regarding economic challenges that patients face, given how much money impacts your health and what should doctors do about patients' yeah. financial challenges? Great question. Yes, yes. Well, I we really, know. I'd like to answer that too. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Anne. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Anne. Well, <laughs> first of all, going back to the, the previous question too, what, what questions researchers should ask, but it's not actually a question, it's a thought. And um, being that I have a rare illness, no one knows anything about it. So I feel maybe research Researchers so shouldn't give up so easily on these rare illnesses. Um, even though there's not a lot of information out there, it doesn't mean that we don't want to know. So more research on rare illnesses, first of all, for that. My illness does cost a lot of money, especially since I don't know much about it. Doctors don't know much about it. So medication is hard to find. And when we do find it, it is thousands and thousands of dollars. So I am constantly on a monthly basis researching different organizations who might be able to help me with co-pays that my insurance don't pay. And those co-pays, even though my insurance pays their part, it's still quite a bit of money because we're talking about thousands of dollars. And also, not only that, if you're on Medicare, such as I am because of due to disability, 
Medicare will only pay a certain amount of procedures or tests per, per year. And so when, that, when I have reached that limit, which I often do, uh, then I have to find other resources. And uh, it's really hard on myself and my family and you know, my caregiver, my daughter, she works full time. And there are days when she has to take time off to take me to the, to the hospital. And we live out in the county. So it takes about an hour and a half to get to the, the hospital. And that's a lot of driving and gas. So it does get quite expensive. And then you have to worry about what you're gonna eat for lunch. And I try to pack mine and it's, it's just a lot to worry about. It's a, a big stress factor. So yeah, it's, it's quite costly to, to, have a, to have an illness. And I, that's why I just, my heart goes out to you, Mike, and to any caregiver uh, out there because it is such a huge, I'm sorry, it's such a huge job. And I'm so grateful for my daughter. God bless you. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. As uh, you all were speaking, what resonated to me in this last few minutes, I want to leave us with. And as, as everyone was speaking, these are the words that bubbled up. I want to take our last few minutes to give a shout out, to give an applause, to give a thunderous roar to all our caregivers out there to say, and use my breath of gratitude for your sacrifices of your finances, of yourself, of your time, of your energy. I wanna say thank you, but I don't quite know if thank you is enough. As I'm listening to my brothers and sisters reflect upon the lived and living experiences that they're in and the gratitude of taking care of father, mother, brother, sister, lover, daughter. I just wanna to say to all our caregivers out there, I don't know if thank you, says it enough. We'll turn it over to Anne. Thank you all. I love you. And y'all know I mean that. <laughs> Thank you for your voice and your energy. I think this is my cue to bring us back together. Please join me in thanking all of our final panelists that you see on your screen, as well as in the images and on the slide. Thank you so much. Lisa, Mike, Anne, and Stephanie, and T, and Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your thoughts, your feelings with us. This is really the best way that we could have ended this meeting. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this Siren podcast episode. Andrew Fancouche does our editing and sound design. Nylon Tho designed our cover art, and Aurélien Jougla composed our music. Yuri Cartier, that's me, and Dylan Gonzalez produced this limited podcast series. Find out more by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.